As you know, we have been looking really at uh, kingdom power. Jesus Christ has arrived. He is on the earth. Luke is recording the arrival of the Messiah, the anointed one who comes, as the prophet had said, in the power of God. And his displays of power, quite frankly, are absolutely staggering. They, they cause us to marvel. You just read through the Gospels and over and over again, the text doesn't embellish anything. It just simply states the fact that God controls the universe. And in Christ, the Messiah would come in the power of the Spirit and he would demonstrate that same control. Absolute sovereign control over all of it. And Jesus Christ, when he came, said to people when he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew records it. Notice what he says here in this section in chapter four, verse 43, when they tried to keep him from going away, he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God. I must preach the kingdom of God. That's precisely how Luke says it throughout his gospel. He uses the the phrase kingdom of God 32 times when he writes the acts of the apostles in the early life of the church. He uses it again and again to refer to the message that they preached. They preached the kingdom of God. All who love Jesus Christ are proclaimers of kingdom power. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim the kingdom of God, so to speak. We proclaim several things about the aspects of the kingdom of God that that arrived and dawned on the earth when Christ arrived. First of all, we proclaim its inauguration. In other words, when Christ came, the power of the kingdom was going to be on display, not just in miracles at the time, but in the changing of dead hearts, the transformation of sinners into those who love Christ. We also herald the requirements of the citizenship of the kingdom, repentance and faith. That's what we proclaim. We tell somebody, hey, you want to be a part of the kingdom of God? You've got to turn from your sin. In other words, you've got to repent of your self-worship and embrace Christ by faith. There's no works. There's no human self-righteousness. So when we proclaim the kingdom of God, we proclaim that when Christ came, he inaugurated the dawning of its power which is clearly on display as Luke continues to record these miracles. And we also proclaim the requirements for citizenship in the kingdom, both those who are citizens now and those who will be with Christ forever, repentance and faith. We also anticipate and long for the final arrival of the fullest expression of the kingdom, all righteousness globally with Christ ruling over his people on the throne In an earthly kingdom. We proclaim that as well. So at Jesus' second coming, we warn people. Listen. At his second coming, there is a full expression of the kingdom of God coming to earth in full power that will involve something that didn't come with his first coming. In his first coming, he came to redeem. And so he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And you remember when he quotes Isaiah in the synagogue... Isaiah 61, he left out that little phrase, the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because Jesus was saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm here, and I've come to preach release to the captives. It's not yet the day of full wrath. That's coming. 
And so today, when we proclaim the kingdom of God, we even include that. Listen, a day is coming and God has fixed it and he will judge the earth through a man. When Paul went into Athens, that's what he said there on Mars Hill. He said, God has fixed a day when he will judge through a man. And he furnished proof that that's the one through whom he will judge. What proof? His resurrection. Again, kingdom power over death. The whole earth will be filled with his glory, as Isaiah the prophet prophesied in chapter 23, and Zechariah the prophet prophesied in chapter 14 of his prophecy. And so Luke, it's no surprise, loves to use the term kingdom of God. As I said, 32 times in this gospel, and then again in the book of Acts. Jesus himself anticipated a future expression of his kingdom, but he was already preaching the power of it and putting that power of it on display. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, he would remind believers how to pray. What did he say? Here's how you're to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your what? Kingdom come. Jesus taught believers how to always anticipate the fullest expression of the kingdom, which would one day come in the fullest fury and wrath of God against those who reject him in order to set up his kingdom of righteousness globally. We're to pray for that, long for that. Jesus taught us to pray like that. He even said in Matthew 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He taught us to anticipate it. There will come a day when he will separate the sheep from the goats. But Jesus also spoke of an inaugural power, a dawning of that power, a coming initially with his person, the Messiah, when he stood on the earth. It isn't the fullest expression of the end times kingdom. But Jesus himself, the king, the savior of his redeemed people, he was on the earth at that time. And when he was on the earth, he was bringing the new covenant. And he was inaugurating the internal fulfillment of that power. In other words... When the ratified covenant was established and Christ was resurrected and then he was exalted to the Father, the Spirit came and began to demonstrate that power inside of believers. Kingdom power. Power over sin. Matthew 12, 28. Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees and they said, Oh, you cast out demons by the power of Satan. You cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons. You remember what Jesus said? Hey, a kingdom divided against itself won't stand. He said, so if I do cast out demons by the prince of demons, that's a kingdom that won't stand. But, and this is his warning to the Pharisees in Matthew 12. But, listen, if I cast out demons by the power of God's spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's in your face right now. It's dawning upon you right now. You better listen up, he says to the Pharisees. Luke's account of it says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God. In other words, God's movement, God's power to move. And so as Jesus exercised his power over the kingdom of darkness, he explained it as an inaugural sign that the power of God's kingdom had dawned upon the earth. This is why Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. I came to bring the dawning of this new promised power that Israel had longed for. The end time promises given throughout the Old Testament 
Man, the Jew would have anticipated it. Oh, I want to see that kind of power. I want to see power over creation. I want to see power in the Messiah's life over the oppression and sin that has ruled over God's people. I want to see that. That would have been the Jew's mindset as he read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel. And so what is Luke doing here? Luke is just laying out the foundation of the works of Christ when he was on the earth to simply say this to his disciples. Listen, the power of the kingdom of God dawned when Christ came and every person he saves is to proclaim the kingdom of God in that power. That includes you and me. We don't often think of witnessing to the community around us with the kingdom of God in our minds, because we think often of the eschatological kingdom, the, the final expression of it. And so we warn people of the wrath, but we don't often think that we're also proclaiming all the other elements of the kingdom. In other words, we have a changed heart. The kingdom power of the Messiah dawned upon the earth, and in the new covenant, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ now lives inside the believer. We become temples of God, worshipers of God. And in that sense, we can proclaim with a transformed heart and a transformed life. And you wonder sometimes what the community sees when the church stops believing Christ, their king, and the gospel ministry becomes weak, insipid. Untruthful, half-truths, a circus, game-playing, manipulation, human techniques. You know what that is? That's a lack of faith. We do not believe, as we ought, as an evangelical church, that the kingdom of God dawned upon the earth in the power Christ displayed as Messiah and now has been brought inside the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit so that when you and I preach to people, we ought to be remembering we are citizens of that power. We have been rescued by that power. If you, on the day that Christ was exercising power over demons and disease like He has been and like we have seen, if you were witnesses to that, And you were seeing the sovereign rule of God over his creation and the kingdom of God and the everlasting dominion of the king himself had dawned in the arrival of the Messiah. Think about it. Two thousand plus years later, here we are, redeemed people, part of that dawning power. That's right. We're part of that dawning power. Say, is there a present aspect of the kingdom? Well, regardless of how scholars go back and forth and argue whether there's a present aspect of the kingdom, I can show you at least one text that demonstrates very clearly that there's a certain aspect in which we live in it. Look at Revelation chapter 1 for a moment. Revelation chapter 1. It's such a clear statement from the Lord himself. Notice verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the sevenfold spirits who are before his throne, that is the spirit of God himself in all of his complete perfections. 
And from Jesus Christ, here it is, verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he has, he has now demonstrated his dominance even over death. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins. Who's the us there? That's us. He's released us by his blood. And he has made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. To him be the glory, and here's that word, and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a dominion passage. Look, the victory has been won. Christ has conquered, and he's made us, by redemption, a kingdom of servants of Christ. The consummation of his arrival isn't yet here. That will come when he arrives and returns to get his people and to set up his kingdom. And then the full fury and wrath of God will be displayed as he sets up his righteous kingdom on the earth and deals with all evil and all sin. That is yet future. But the dawning of this new power, it's already here. And it was made manifest in the arrival of Christ. You say, Pastor, why is this so important? Listen, when Peter was fishing, doing business, like all of us do, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was going to call him into full-time service. Not just full-time service, but the lead apostle of the group. Peter needed to know that this was the kingdom of God dawning. He needed to know that. In fact, he'll doubt it up and down just like we do, all the way through his life. And even in John chapter 21, there he is on the beach, or there Jesus is on the beach, and there Peter is out in the boat, and the same kind of thing happens. And Peter comes to shore, and Jesus says to him, follow me, feed my sheep. I called you into full-time service. What are you worrying about your business for? It's interesting how we vacillate. Well, the same thing happens here. Notice, verse 42, when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. That's a no-brainer. <laughs> uh, it's, it's obvious. Jesus had been healing. He's exhausted. He's been preaching and teaching nonstop. He's been dealing with all the demonic forces. We saw last time in verse 41 that he'd been healing every disease that was brought to him in Capernaum that previous few nights. And throughout the day and into the evening, and no, no doubt well past midnight, he was doing this teaching and preaching and healing and casting out demons ministry. So he needs time to rest and seek his God. That is profound, by the way. You could do an entire series on that. How is it that the, the, the wonderful God-man, Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord of the universe, who's also 100% man, how is it that he sees his dependence upon the Father? What a lesson for us. Always going away to rest and pray. It's a rebuke to us. Notice the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Well, that's also a no-brainer. <laughs> I get that. I mean, they, they want to keep Jesus right there in Capernaum and make Capernaum a center of power and healing to the world. He's got this kind of power, and it wasn't a disease he couldn't deal with, and it was just like this endlessly, and the line was dealt with, and there was nobody sitting there in wheelchairs waiting saying it was their lack of faith that was the problem. Nothing was staged. I want to keep him there. 
But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Why does Luke put the calling of Peter here then on the heels of this? Some, some commentators think this is exactly what happened in Mark 1 and Matthew's parallel passage, and that this happened earlier before he even came to Capernaum. Well, there's no evidence uh, that makes that clear. We just don't know. I think, though, either way, whenever this happened, this call of Peter, Luke puts it here for that very reason. I must preach the kingdom of God. And Peter, I want you to preach the kingdom of God too. And you've got to come with me. How's Peter going to come with him? Are you kidding? I mean, my business is going to be in trouble. I've got a family to take care of. I've got partners in business that are counting on me. I lead this thing. Well, Jesus has a lesson for him. He's already mentioned Simon in chapter 4, 38 and 39. Jesus had already healed Simon's mother-in-law who lived with him. We saw that. And it's interesting that Luke kind of does a textual thing. You can't see it here in your text. But notice at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, now it happened. Notice that phrase, now it happens. That's the translation of one Greek word. And it appears several times in this entire section. And what Luke is doing is he's connecting the entire section all the way to 6, all the way to chapter 6 through verse, I believe, 12. And so what you have here is this repeated phrase by Luke. What's he doing? He's stringing the whole section together. And the reason he's stringing it together is to demonstrate what he will say in chapter 6, verse 19. Look what he says. All the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. That's Luke's point. Kingdom powers on the earth. Whomever he calls should go. Whomever he tells to repent should repent. Kingdom power is here in the person of Christ. And so in this story, Peter's being called into full-time service. And the whole idea is connected to this preaching of the kingdom of God's power and to bring men and women into a relationship with him as redeemed people. Now, notice what's happening here. And just be two sort of outline things to hang your thoughts on, and then we'll be finished. The narrative moves pretty quickly. First of all, Jesus was giving God's word whenever possible. He was giving God's word whenever possible. Notice verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And so he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. Now this is an object lesson for Peter. Look, if... You're on the earth, and there's kingdom power and a gospel of the kingdom of God to be proclaimed. Then if you're called, whatever sphere of life you're called in, in this case it'll be Peter into full-time service, whatever it is, I want you to give God's word whenever possible. That's what the Lord himself did. He, more than anyone else, deserved rest time, prayer time, time alone. He deserved an entourage. He deserved uh, private hours, a special palace. More than anyone else, he deserved all of that. We deserve none of it. And yet we complain when we have to give God's word at inconvenient times. Well, here's an object lesson that begins this miracle. The scene is no surprise to us. If you'd, if you'd been at Capernaum 
or in that area over the last few days, you wouldn't miss a waking moment to be around this guy. You would be a crowd at the water's edge. Jesus trying to walk by the water. You would press in on him just to hear what he was saying. The verb here, pressing around him, was that they were trying to hear. It was a huge crowd. And don't imagine that Jesus spoke in soft tones. Don't imagine that. There was no PA system in that day, as you know. And so you had, without electronic amplification, you had two ways. You get in the amphitheater type side of the hillside, or you go into a prepared amphitheater so sound goes up the mountain to the crowds, or you just yell. You have to have some pretty powerful lung capacity. I remember in the preacher's college, in Spurgeon's preacher's college, he would not admit people who didn't have lung capacity back then. And he would make, you know, he would make mention of guys who would come in to apply to be preachers, but he would say they had sunken chests. He said they were never going to make good preachers because they could not be heard. And uh, he, he said this in one of his sections. You should always speak so as to be heard. I know a man who weighs 16 stone and ought to be able to be heard half a mile who gracelessly avoids exerting energy that in his small place of worship, you can scarcely hear him in front of the gallery. <laughs> He's talking about preachers that have capacity but don't use it. He says, what is the use of a preacher whom men cannot hear? End quote. He was just very down to earth with it. Jesus was no doubt the same way. He could definitely preach many times, several hours on end. He delighted in it, for that's why he came. And notice the group was listening to the word of God. The verb used here means they were already continually for some time listening to him speak. Couldn't help as I read that to note the irony, though. I doubt Luke intended it. This is the word of God preaching the word of God. (laughs) The logos of God preaching the logon of God, as the text says. So there's your first object lesson for Peter before the, in preparation for this miracle. Giving the word of God, giving the truth wherever and whenever possible. And it was standing room only here. But then a disruption comes to the routine that Simon has in his business. Jesus was standing by the lake. He saw the two boats lying at the edge. The fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. Jesus has to get himself into a position where he's not going to be shoved by the mob into the water. And he sees the two boats that belong to this set of brothers and their fishing business. Peter and Andrew owned one of the boats, and it says later in the text that their partners in business were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They owned the other boat. And the men, the text indicates, had fished all night. They were washing their nets. I mean, they went out in the middle of the night. They fished all night where the fish would feed uh, late into the evening and then past midnight and on into the wee hours. Then they would come in in the morning and they would wash their nets. It was a massive task. They were exhausted by the end of the night. The men had thrown the large nets out over and over again and gathered them back up over and over again. And at this point, they were frustrated because it caught nothing. And so they were exhausted, frustrated, They're ready to get their equipment cleaned and put away so they could probably get uh, about the business of some rest, maybe a little food and sustenance. Obviously, they could see and hear the massive crowd that had gathered, but they were still taking care of business. 
Jesus is over there teaching. They'd seen him already in Capernaum. They'd been with him a bit. It wasn't a formal calling yet, but no doubt Jesus had made it clear that he liked having them around. And there they were doing their fishing business, trying to sustain life. And they come back in and they're washing their nets. And this massive crowd is already around Jesus. And so they're probably interested in what Jesus is saying to the crowd. But business is business. And they need to move beyond the frustrating sort of empty handed evening that they'd had and get the equipment ready for going out later that night. And so Jesus then, in the midst of that, climbs into Peter's boat and he asks him to put back out of the water. I mean, this is frustrating. You got all your stuff out. You're drying the nets, cleaning the nets. And Jesus climbs in one of the boats. Crowd is pressing in. And he says, get off the shoreline just a little bit so that I can teach them. Peter obviously did it. The text says that that's exactly what happened. But he was no doubt full of tension and it was mounting. He's probably thinking how much money they lost the night before and how much hard work it's going to take to recover their losses. They're utterly distracted with the preparation for later on. And now he's in the boat and he'd rather probably be sleeping. Jesus is teaching from the boat and Peter would probably rather be just mentally shutting down. Now he's captive. He has to be an audience. Who knows how long the sermon's going to last? But Jesus has another lesson for him. The first was to give God's word wherever or whenever possible. The second is to seek a soul wherever prompted. To seek souls wherever prompted. Notice verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Uh, This is a problem. Not a fisherman. No experience. In fact, he's a he's a carpenter. He works with tools and wood and things like that. And, And now he's a rabbi. So he's going around teaching. He's not an expert at this business. Peter has survived all these years without counsel from novices, let alone maybe the bookworm preacher types, the holy men that went around. You can imagine the blue-collar guy saying, what? You're going to try to hammer that nail, really? You're going to grab my nets and help with the fishing, really? Jesus just simply says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Jesus indicates that there's going to be result. That's fascinating to me. He doesn't have any experience in this, and everyone knows that because he's saying put out into the deep water in the middle of the morning. Fish don't feed at that time. He wasn't with us all night to see that nothing came in, so obviously this guy's, you know, he's just causing us more frustration. You don't fish in the morning or early afternoon if you're in the business, unless it's really, really early in the dark hours of the morning. The best results are later at night when they're feeding and they come near the surface of the water. The greatest quantity of fish feed in the schools near the surface. Jesus is saying, get out there where it's deep. The likelihood of a catch is seriously low. So this guy, Jesus, is asking an awful lot of a seasoned fisherman. By now, Peter is hearing from Jesus do it. 
In fact, Peter's answer should have been immediately, uh, okay, I'll do it. Should have been. If he was believing in kingdom power, if he was um, already beginning to embrace what he'd already seen, he saw Jesus immediately heal his mother-in-law, and then she served. Why did she serve? To give manifestation that when Jesus tells a disease to flee, a fever to go away and rebukes it, it goes. He has power over disease, power over demons, power over the truth, power over all knowledge. We already saw that. By now, Peter should, when he hears Jesus speak, just simply write it down and go do it. Yeah, but here's the problem. Peter also makes what we often make, beloved, a human evaluation as to the viability of this thing. There was a human evaluation based on natural experience. Jesus can't possibly know how and what we go through, nor was he with us all night when there was nothing coming in. He obviously doesn't know the industry. You don't fish in the morning or early afternoon. My experience is telling me everything against this. And now he's asked us to go out into the deep water. The likelihood is ridiculous. And so his answer that he gives to Jesus is laced now with some attitude and fears about struggling business affairs. I'm thankful that Peter has a mixture of immature faith here. I'm thankful. That's a grace from the Lord. Notice Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night, caught nothing. Like Jesus didn't know that. I mean, there they were cleaning their nets. They weren't cleaning fish. I didn't catch anything, huh? He's like he says it when he gets in John 21 at the end of his ministry after his resurrection. And he's on the beach and they can't really tell who it is. And he says the same thing. Did you guys catch anything? He already knows. And in the course of the miracle... They didn't catch anything, though there might be a natural course of processes, but Jesus had an object lesson in store, so he diverted the fish away from the nets. He's not going to catch anything. God doesn't want you to catch a fish. You can't catch a fish. You can have the greatest bait, all the trophies on your wall you want. You can be Wink Dorsbacher. <laughs> and if God doesn't want you to catch a fish, you're not going to catch a fish. If he wants you to catch a hundred, you'll catch a hundred on one hook. It doesn't matter. God can do it. It's amazing, the setup. And there's a mixture of immature faith here. Notice Peter says, Master, we worked all night. We caught nothing. And there's just a comma in the text. Luke just records a comma. But I, I just can't imagine there not being some space between those two statements. You know, waiting for Jesus' countenance to change. Master, we didn't catch a thing. He gets no response. So he says, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. The literal Greek says at your rhema, at your word. At the mere speaking of it, Lord, I will let down the nets. It's one of Peter's better moments, though mixed with attitude. He's doing it out of somewhat resignation rather than absolute trust, but he has some trust here. And so God sovereignly orchestrates the details 
men foolishly assess the viability and then divine power definitively crushes pride. God's kingdom power, whatever he wants to do, definitively crushes pride. Notice, when they had done this, what did that take? That meant getting it out there, getting both boats out there. So there's some time lapse here. They're getting both boats out to where it is deeper. We don't know how the coast ran away at that point. Maybe it got deep pretty quick. But when they had done this, Luke says, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So, their fishermen, experienced, have great equipment. They put out the nets like they just had, sore muscles and all, at a time when fish don't feed. And Luke simply records that when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. Their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. So Peter and, uh, and Andrew are in this boat, and, and they're calling James and John, get over here to help us. And they came, and it wasn't just enough to break the nets. It was enough for two boats, and this is a shock, so that the boats began to sink. Come on. I mean, sink, full of equipment, sometimes full of multiple fishermen, sometimes a crew. I don't know how big the boats are. The one they recovered that, that's been dated back to the first century. It was under the mud that they preserved in the museum there. We saw it. It's not a very big boat. And, and perhaps that's an accurate time assessment of that craft. Either way, Jesus was making it clear that when he wants to control sovereignly with his power all of nature, it is not a problem. He can keep fish out of your nets, and when he wants to bring them, he brings them. And he brought them in a way that defied the fishermen's industry, defied their industry completely. Peter got it, verse 8. His pride was crushed when Peter saw. He fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Oh, Lord, there's an exclamation there at the end. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. He, he got it. Uh, it's not so much that he didn't, ultimately want to be around Jesus because he knew Jesus had the power to overcome demons and disease and he stumped all theological questions so he was the source of all knowledge. So he had authority over knowledge, authority over the demonic hosts of the universe, authority over all sickness and illness. And here he's showing authority over nature. He can just direct animals and fish. He could make your industry what you need it to be. In fact, perhaps that's why we see that kernel of faith in Peter here. Because if he was faithless, maybe he would have been like the crowds. Oh, let's, let's have a welfare state, Jesus. When he feeds the crowd on the side of the hillside, they want to take him to Jerusalem and install him as king. Why? Because politically, militarily, if he's got that kind of power, he could overthrow Rome and feed us forever with physical food. We'd never have to do any crops. The kingdom is here. We're just going to eat and and. Never have to work a day in our life. 
you would, you would suspect that Peter would have that problem here. And if this guy can take care of my business like this, all I've ever done is throw the net out, throw the net out, throw the net out, gather it in, gather it in, gather it in. And all I've ever seen is a mere pittance. I've survived it. It's been a business, but no greater than anybody else's. I've got just two boats in my partnership. I only own one of them. Jesus could make me a millionaire. Totally set for life. And that's exactly what people in the prosperity movement do with their version of Jesus. They come to him for wrong things. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, the power of Christ. He's not preaching and displaying power here so that people can grab onto that power and use it for their own ends. All it was being displayed for here were lessons to his people that he, in fact, was the Messiah and the message he preached about the coming kingdom was true. It weren't miracles for miracles' sake. I love the fact that Peter got it. And he got it. He didn't run toward Jesus. He fell down immediately in humility and said, Please, Lord, get away from me. What do you think was going on in Peter's heart and mind? He saw the blackness of it. He probably, as he rowed that boat out to the deep waters, was cursing in his mind and heart. If this is what ministry is going to be with this guy, who's completely obtuse to my needs, completely disregarding of my business, asking me to do things, yet he, he gives little, who is this guy? Man, when Jesus demonstrated his kingdom power over nature, and therefore over commerce, and therefore over business and livelihood, and therefore over sustenance, He fell down and he said, Lord, you've got to get away from me because I am only worthy of death, condemnation, punishment. Get away from me, a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 9, here's the explanatory. Amazement had seized him. This isn't that's such an unfortunate translation. This is... Heart-pumping, adrenaline-flowing, light-headed shock. And you would be. Yes, you would be. I didn't catch anything all night. One time, one net, and both boats are about to sink. Who is this guy? Later, when they're in a storm on the ocean, and Jesus comes to them in the storm, and he calms the storm, they were frightened by seeing Jesus, thinking they had seen a ghost, an apparition. That would be frightening enough. And then when he calmed the storm, it says they were exceedingly terrified. Because when you're around that kind of power that can basically tell a hurricane, be quiet. In an instant, you know you're dealing with sovereign power. That kind of energy doesn't listen to humanity. That kind of energy stirred up only listens to God. The wind and the waves obey him. Peter saw Jesus' direct nature and the fish listened to the voice of the preacher. And they came. And Peter knew that God had been gracious. He knew the Lord had been gracious. 
because he was ridiculing Jesus in his mind and heart. And here his industry was about to have a boost financially and he didn't deserve it. And all his companions, verse 9, because of the catch of fish, they were also seized by this shock. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners, they're shocked. Everybody is just, just amazed and stunned. In fact, they're afraid. Say, how do you know? Verse 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Well, of course you're afraid. Of course. Don't be afraid, Peter. He said this to Simon. Don't be afraid, Peter. Here's the lesson to you, Simon. If I call you into the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God, and I tell you you're going to catch the souls of men, I don't want you walking off the job. Don't you do it. I may put you in the fishing industry to do it. I may put you in the heart of Jerusalem, right there at the Temple Mount. I may put you at the foot of my cross. I may have you go take the book of, in the Acts of the Apostles and lead the church. I don't know. I may take you wherever I want to take you and you may end up dying upside down on a cross. As men bind your hands and take you where you don't want to go. But if I've demonstrated the power of the kingdom and I told you you're going to catch men, then however I want you to catch men, I don't want you walking off that job. That's what kingdom power does for the believer. Listen, beloved, men have been being caught. The term is the same word he uses when Jesus says, let your nets down for a catch. Same term. Let your nets down for a bringing in and, and securing. That's the term. From now on, Peter, you're going to be catching souls. And since that time, God has been, by his power, transforming souls. Here is a room full of believers, those of you who know and love Christ. You are souls that have been caught by that promise that began with this vacillating apostle. Here you are. Now, what has God called you to do? What's your sphere of influence? You proclaim the kingdom of God, don't you? The dawning power of Christ. In fact, this isn't even post-death or resurrection. This is before then. After the resurrection, Peter went out with power and began to catch the souls of men. At his first sermon, 3,000 fish. 3,000 souls. And they were all Jewish. Wow. One sermon. 3,000 souls. Don't you think when those 3,000 raised their hand and bowed in repentance and cried out to God, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and believe the gospel and be baptized. Don't you think that when those 3,000 Jews did that, Peter thought of this promise? And he also thought of his time on the beach, John 21, when Jesus said, do you love me? He said, yes, I love you, Lord. You know that I love you. I'm grieved that you keep asking me. Then get out of your fishing business and go preach. Some men and women I'm going to put into the, into the business world, into the marketplace, into politics. But not you, Peter. You, I've given the keys to open up this preaching ministry. And I want you to do that. And so you feed my sheep, Peter. He would later tell the elders... 
when he wrote First Peter chapter 5, listen, as a fellow partaker of the sufferings of Christ, and I've witnessed the sufferings of Christ, I'm telling you to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. This is Peter. Follow the Lord by doing what He's called you particularly to do. Verse 11, when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything <laughs> and they followed Him. That is not a mistaken line. That is not short because Luke forgot what to say. He meant it to be abrupt. They left everything. What does that mean? Though they were going to doubt, though they were still going to vacillate at times, though they needed the strengthening of their faith, though they needed Christ and then they needed His Spirit, though all that's true, they actually never looked back with any heart to go back. They left it all and followed Him. Peter's faith was strengthened. Peter was made aware of his sin and his need for the Lord's grace. And he left to serve the kingdom wherever the Lord required. There it is right there for you and I. There it is. Same lessons. That miracle is to give us the same encouragement to strengthen our faith. I don't know where your sphere of influence is. I don't know where you're called to preach the gospel of the kingdom. But the dawning kingdom power of Christ when he was here on the earth is now in you. That power is in you. You are a priesthood, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy people. And you're to proclaim the gospel in your sphere of influence. I don't know where that is. I know where mine is. I don't know where yours is. But wherever it is, you are to be strengthened in your faith that whatever God brings to your doorstep, you're to not let your heart be troubled, but you, by the power of the Spirit, are to believe in God and believe also in Christ. And you're to be aware of your desperate need for His grace and aware of your sin. Peter just sees it. He, he's humbled by being called into the Lord's service. That's what we ought to be. I think the church has become weak because it's so proud. It thinks it can manufacture conversions. You can't. When you're humble and needy and want the Lord to work, He does great things. There's no guarantee He'll save everyone you preach to. But He does amazing things in the souls of men. And then wherever the Lord requires. Wherever the Lord requires, wherever He sends you, that's what He's calling you to do. So when you pray before the Lord and you say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you doing His will? Are you following His will where He's called you? What a lesson for Peter. As I said, he will waffle, just like we waffle. Don't get discouraged by that. I mean, obviously it's grieving, but go before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I waffle. I, I get it. I, I am not always steady. I need strength and faith. I need to be aware of my pride. I need that crushed, and I need... Responsibility in the kingdom. Give me responsibility, Lord. Give me tasks. I don't want to be idle or I'll forget what you called me to do. And when Jesus said on the beach at the end of his ministry, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. You remember what happened? John was walking. Peter saw him and he looked at John. He pointed to John and he said to Jesus, what about him? What are you, what are you giving him to do? And Jesus said, Hey, if I want him to live forever and never die a physical death, what is that to you? 
you follow me. In fact, the disciples were so puny-minded that even Jesus saying that, it set them about gossiping. Oh, John's going to live forever. Oh. He's got some special dispensation. No. You know what he said? What is that to you, Peter? I gave you this to do. You do that. Of course, Peter was nervous because Jesus had just said, you know what? One day they're going to bind you up and take you where you don't want to go. You're going to die a martyr's death, Peter. He's saying, you mean I'm going to feed your sheep and then that? Follow me, Peter. Focus. It's focus. If you want to run the race with endurance, the writer of Hebrews chapter 12 says that you set aside every encumbrance and all the sin that so easily besets us and you run the race fixing your eyes on whom? Christ, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith and our ministry. Amen. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for this wonderful, very special, very convicting text. Man, we can identify with Peter. There he is in that boat with you. And he's just realized how prideful he's been. How little he's thought about your power when it was right in front of his face. And we have your word. We have the resurrection as proof. We are now 2,000 years past all those displays of power. We have the Spirit of God who wrote your word and who illumines our minds to it from within. We have rivers of living water flowing from within us by your indwelling Spirit. And here we are still evaluating circumstances, putting you on trial when you call us to serve. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, strengthen our faith. May we admit our need, our desperate condition, and yet may we Focus our attention, set our face like a flint on what you've called us to do, wherever you've called us to do it, and just give the word of God and to desire the souls of men more in the kingdom. Help us to be faithful, O God, and to not question you and your purposes. For Jesus Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen.